So we'll just start here tonight. Okay, so for the for those of you on WebEx right now, I'm going to switch screens, and you have a PowerPoint and a video. I'm going to show the video, and I'm going to explain to everyone what we're doing right now. So I'm trying a little something different. We, we have four people, four families, connected through WebEx tonight. So I'm going to probably open it up at various times to see if they have comments. So you won't be able to see their video, and neither will I, but you can hear them and they can see what's going on right here. So maybe we can improve on that as time goes on, but it's kind of a trial run tonight. Um, so they're all listening in, and I'm, they're texting me if something goes wrong. <laughs> so, okay, so you have in front of you, those of you who are here tonight, what? We have a, we have a picture up here of a video, which I have sent on WebEx to everyone, as well as what's on your table. Okay, it's a chip. All right, so this serves as a purpose. You may now eat your chip if you want. Okay, one more time, just so you can get the context here for the illustration. Uh, <laughs> okay, that is like one of my all-time favorite commercials uh, <laughs> from Doritos. Now, the question is, what is that meant to illustrate, and what do you have in front of you? Well, I wanted to point out to you that in some kind of an analogical way, a little far-fetched, but the attributes of God are such that you can't just have one. You can't have one at a time. Just like Doritos. And you can have some more of these, Mario, if you want. <laughs> you don't like cheese. So you can pass them down if you don't want them. They're a nice little snack. But the point is this. Look. Make sure they get to Bob. Yeah, that's right. Hey, it's, it's not... <laughs> not only Bob. I know that someone over here, I think her name is Joy. Those are like her favorite chips. <laughs> The illustration, though, is you can't have just one. And, and we're going to look at the attributes of God tonight. And like Doritos, right, it's a, it's a package deal, right? If you, if you try to separate one of God's attributes from who he is, you get a different picture. And we're going to talk about divine simplicity, among other things, tonight. We're going to talk about trinity or triunity of God. We're going to talk about some other things as well. So, last week, if I can... Turn this on. Last week, what did we talk about just generally in chapters 9 through 13? The authority of the Scripture. Thank you, Gail. That's right. The authority of Scripture. What else? We mentioned that briefly. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about it. I did, I did mention that, though. Infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Very good, sister. From this side of the camp now, we've got women have given good answers. We've got a table of all men here. What, what did we talk about? We can't talk about <laughs> They're all eating Doritos. Philip Johnson, what, what's one thing we talked about? Okay, that's good. Yeah, we had an illustration. Jim, what were you going to say? Well, we talked about how... Yeah, we gave a case study and then we talked about tying, trying to tie, and maybe I was a little too critical, so I just want to backtrack a little bit on that. I, I do find value in systematic theology but we don't want to separate it from practice and biblical theology and Christ, who is the point of the Scripture. Yeah, that's good. So we talked about knowing God in that respect and what that means. And then we talked about what our culture displays God as. When they see God, they see maybe someone who makes you happy. 
Or someone who kind of is a deistic God who lets it run and he doesn't really care all that much. He's, he's willing to give it control over to someone else. And it's a really hard job, but anyone can kind of do it. We talked about some other things. We talked about the fact that we have different theological perspectives on God in Richardson. And so we talked about our culture not having the same view of God as we do. And it's important to realize that as we, as Jim said, and really as Philip said, we look at how do we interact with them. Because most people have a different view of God than we do. Talked about the fact that there are meaningful ways to speak of God, but there's only one sufficient way. And this, what, what, what is the sufficient way? The only sufficient way in which we can know about God. His word. Amen. His word. We can have other meaningful conversations, but the only one that tells us the truth and everything we need to know is Scripture. And we did case studies in evangelism. Tonight, we're going to talk about the nature and attributes of God in depth. So we'll go through communicable, which means ones that we can have some similarity to Him in, and incommunicable, which means that we have no similarity to God in and have no point really of reference other than God's revelation to us in Scripture. But I first want to get your input. And I would like as many people to think about this question right now before we get started because I have tried and, and failed in the past and God is still working on me as a teacher to get your input. As Bob said last time, and as many of you have experienced in life, theology is not just done in the classroom. In fact, I believe that theology is best done in the world, in the body of Christ interacting with the world. And so, I want to talk about this question with you tonight, and I'm going to give some examples. I'm going to try to model what I want you to share with us. So you're going to have to kind of pay attention to the way I present this, and then I'm going to open it up. Because I think your stories, with, without sounding too postmodern-ish, let me put it a different way maybe. The Spirit's work in your life, in the body of Christ, is valuable to our discussion today. So I'm going to share with you a couple of examples I have and then a biblical one and then I'll ask you, hey, what are some things that you might think that you've experienced that answer this question? So the question is this, what ways has your experience and culture shaped or challenged who you believe God is? And remember, we're in the attributes part, so we're thinking about his characteristics, Okay, we have negative, positive, or both. So for me, I want to give you three examples. The first one is kind of a cultural one. How has culture shaped or challenged my theology? Well, you all, most of you know, I, Jen and I spent about six months in India. And I'm a very A-type personality. <laughs> and I, I believe God is a God of order. But maybe, in my mind, order was not the same as the way I do things. In other words... I was usually asked to speak a sermon or to give a sermon the day before. The day before, and oftentimes, it was, I didn't even have that much notice. I'd walk in and say, hey, would you, Brother Philip, would you like to give a sermon? So that was a real struggle for me. I was like, is this even right? That, that did cross my mind. And I think if we're honest, sometimes we think that about other people's experience of the body of Christ. It, what does that mean? So I guess... It was both positive and negative. I think there were some good things about that. And then I think there were some bad things. Maybe it is true that we need to have less 
dependence on our preparation and more on the Spirit. And so it kind of balanced, I think, what I think God is like. Secondly, uh, as far as God loves widows and orphans, another story from India. You know, we often pass homeless people here. You see them. But on the streets of Hyderabad in India, it's much different. And so I, had, I really struggled with this question. God says he loves widows and orphans. What about these? Because they're all over there. That was a challenge to me. I had to ask myself, how is it that God loves and cares for? He says he is the defender of widows and orphans. I had to ask myself, what does that mean? Because people will grow up and die on the streets of India, never having home nor family. And so one of the things I think that God impressed on me was that the church is supposed to be the hands and feet and the body of Christ for the widows and orphans. And that is one of the ways in which we imitate God's character. Lastly, is God really personal? You know, this is from the United States. I was not walking with the Lord in much of my young ages, up until probably about 22, 23 years old. And God was not personal to me. I knew it was a religion out there. I I may have known Christ as Savior. I may not have. I think I did, but I certainly wasn't trusting in him daily. And it was something out there. And I really struggled with that until one night I had to reckon with on the way home from work that either God was personal and made an impact in my life, as Scripture says, or he didn't exist at all. And so, obviously, by the grace of God, I stand before you today saying he is personal. But my experience at my job particularly really made me struggle with that because I was having a hard time at work with my boss and all of those things. Lastly here, before I open it up, I think the disciples in Luke chapter 10 really had a challenge in experience. Jesus sent them out, 72, two by two, and they went out and they cast out demons and they saw Satan fall like lightning, they said, in that chapter. Okay, you follow? Remember that account? They come back, And Jesus tells them, look, you saw that, but that's not the greatest thing. Rejoice instead that your names are written in the book of life. I think that's how that goes, or in the Lamb's book of life. Someone knows that exactly. I'm not positive on that. But I think for them, the challenge was, does my experience, the way I feel it, match up with reality? Because they were really happy about demons being cast out instead of, I think, what Jesus wanted them to be happy about, salvation. And so I think that speaks of God's character as well, that he cares more about a person's soul than about physical deliverance. Now, he cares about both, but I think that's one lesson we can learn from there. So I want to open it up now. I want stories, maybe in your life. Robert. Okay, from my experience. Yeah, so, so Robert is saying, I think, that what, what attribute of God, what part of his character would you say that speaks to? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. Omniscience, okay, that's good. Omniscience, that's a good one, okay. Jim, you have something you want to share? Beautiful. God loves a widow. God loves orphans, the way he took care of Gail's children. That was really great. Thank you all for being brave and sharing. Um, I think it really helps us here get a grasp, more than just in a classroom or a book, of what does it mean that we have a God who is loving, caring, a provider of widows and orphans, 
someone who is holy and just. And at the same time, challenges our experience or informs it or or shapes it. So thanks for sharing, everyone. So tonight, then, I want to move into uh, the incommunicable attributes of God, the omnis. Now, there are others. We could talk, as some have said, time would fail me to tell you of the eternality of God, etc. But we will focus on the three most commonly understood attributes, but maybe in a little different way. And this is one of the things I was most thankful for in systematic theology because not only does Sproul handle this exceptionally well, probably the best section so far, in some sense, with these, but also I had a very good teacher who taught me how to think about these in light of Scripture. So, first of all, I want to give you kind of a statement or the way I think of these. And it's historically understood in systematic theology circles, this is the way we think about them. So God is omnipotent. Simply means what? Yeah, all-powerful, able to do everything. By way of being, what do I mean there? What is that supposed to mean? Well, that's just who he is, okay? God is all-powerful because he exists. Has no beginning. Yeah, that, that's another thing we can infer. We are becoming, he is. right we become something we change again he is immutable now the rest maybe you haven't thought of this way but he is omnipresent therefore by way of omnipotence well why is that well if god is able to do whatever he wants then he can be anywhere and this is a very important way to think about this because This eliminates any possibility of pantheism or panentheism, which say God is a part of the world or in the world. God is not omnipresent in that he is physically present everywhere, though he can manifest himself and has. But I believe the best way to think about this then is that he is omnipresent by way of his omnipotence. It's very interesting when you think about scriptures that say this. I formed you in your womb, in your mother's womb. Well, how is it that he is there forming you if not except omnipresent means that he has the power to do it there and everywhere else? Lastly, I think we can say that he is therefore omniscience by way of his omnipresence and some will say also by way of his omnipotence. That one usually has both, but just for the sake of logical progression... And this is, this is actually the way, I believe, and I'm going to give you this, the way Scripture presents our great God. And this is the way that the book lays it out. See, we read in the beginning that God is omnipotent basically because he's creator. And one of the first things we learn about God is what? Is what? Well, he spoke the world into being. I mean, I, really, you can't think of a greater act for anyone to do. Something from nothing. Out of ex nihilo, right? That statement. And so this is the first thing that is usually talked about biblically for a God who is omnipotent. Secondly is resurrection. The second most powerful thing, maybe they're on equal planes if you think about it, but the second thing that's traditionally said about God and his omnipotence is that he can raise the dead. Or not just raise the dead, But give life where there is none. What might be an example of life where there is none? 
on God's omnipotence. Okay, that's a great one. Yeah? What else? This is a little harder. That's the easier one. Good job, Jim. What about giving a child to a woman who is barren? Sarah is a great example. This is one of the ways in which we see God's omnipotence displayed. He's able to give life where there is none. Where there should be, but has died. Really, that's what the case with a barren woman and, as Jim said, maybe more importantly, certainly for eternity, life in a dead being who has no relationship with God. And finally, maybe my favorite, is that God is able to humble. Ever think about that? Like, this is one that I guess my teacher really just kind of backdoored me with, right? It's like, oh, I know he can create. Okay, I can see he can raise from the dead, but... And he can humble people. We cannot do that. You, you can, a person can lose everything they have. They can be living on the street, about to die, and they can still be proud and refuse. Now, I think it was Napoleon who, went, when he was dying, spat in God's face. I don't remember the words exactly. This came to me, but I think he's one. There are others who, everything is taken away, and they curse God, and they're still proud. And yet, None of us can change their hearts, but we have some good biblical examples. Nebuchadnezzar is a great one, isn't it? <laughs> he, he had a hard heart. And God turned him into an animal, made him eat grass. Among other things, I don't think that's the only thing he did in his life, but he humbled him. So at the very end, I believe he's one of the greatest examples of fulfillment of God's purpose through Israel in Daniel for the nations. The king of the world, I believe we're going to see him in heaven. Paul is another good one. Paul was killing people and putting us believers in prison and God humbled him. And finally, we see in second or 1 Samuel 2:7. Can someone read that really loud? 1 Samuel 2:7. Thank you, Bob. I think we have stories of this happening more often than that kind of quote-unquote proof texting, but that's a really good one because of the context, but it's also clear. God is the one who humbles. And so I'm not going to give you, we can think of other ones um, about omniscience and, and omnipresence, but I really wanted to define clearly for you the three traditional historical systematic theology points about who God is as far as omnipotence. These are what you'll find, and I think, you know, it's been said, you can read, but the, almost everything falls into here. If you think about it, as far as God's power, you know, there are things, you know, obviously he can send a storm, but that really falls under some of these things, usually both in act and in purpose. <laughs> so usually he'll send a storm, create life, or make something out of nothing for another purpose as well. Now let's talk about the second aspect. So we have kind of the incommunicable attributes of omnis, but then we have another area that is typically treated under here, and that's the Trinity. So... What's the Trinity? One God, three persons. Okay? What is one God usually? How do we flush that out usually? We don't say, I mean, we do say that, but there's another term or, yeah, yeah, one essence, one substance, three persons. What? Monotheism. What? Mono what? Sorry? Oh, monotheism. Yes. Monotheism, rightly. Not, Not one God. And one person, but 
one essence, three persons. Now, another part, so we're getting to parts of the book that I do like. Another part is he talks about paradox versus contradiction. This is important because you'll, you'll, you have read, maybe, people like Brian McLaren, who says that this doctrine is not important and that it actually is a logical contradiction. And so he talks about the fact that it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. Contradiction is what? Both can't be true. That's right. If you say X and not X, they can't both be true. A paradox is different. It seems to us not to logically work, but it is not strictly a logical contradiction. It would be X and X plus Y. Or X and in this case, maybe X plus Y plus Z. Right? So it is not a contradiction. And so that's the, I have heard that, probably you have, in, in witnessing or reading articles online, you'll hear, oh, the Trinity is just a contradiction made up by man. That's not true. That's one thing we can say is, okay, you may not understand it, but it doesn't mean it's a contradiction. Earlier we said that really, when we talk about essence, it's about existing versus coming into being. About being versus becoming in the nature of God. Under this, I think we want to talk about divine aseity or self-existence. And that, who said it earlier? Someone said, we're created. Was that you, Bernie? Someone over here said. I blame Bernie. So, <laughs> you blame Bernie. <laughs> so, oftentimes, you'll hear a, a traditional argument called, I believe, the cosmological argument. And people, famous people will say, yeah, but who created God? You've heard that most likely. I once, I once heard a child at Emmaus say, he, he went on this thing and then he's like, well, I'll just eat God. <laughs> I don't know what he was talking about, but, you know, like going back, who created God? God you know, that almost infinite, right, effects. He's not an effect. He's a cause. There's a big difference. Simplicity. And this is kind of one of the things I illustrate with a chip. You can't get one without the others. Technically speaking, this is where a lot of heresy comes in. Because, and actually, a lot of our struggle in theology that you have mentioned here, I think, comes from us not believing the inseparability of God, that when he is disciplining us, he still loves us. When he is producing holiness in us, he is exercising his justice in the world. All, all of them at the same time without separation in any way. I also want to talk about one common, it's not up here, but I'd like to really just lay this out here for you. A very common theological error that is said, and maybe you disagree with me, but um, that really I think when we understand it, we'll understand God's glory. You have heard it said that at the cross... God separated himself, or the Son was separated from the Father. That he turned his back on him, and in some way, they were not connected. Now, as far as that goes, when we think about these things, it is impossible that God would be separated from himself. In fact, Psalm 22, where that comes from, is a quote of Jesus. He's quoting the psalm. And he's saying, even though it seems like, just like in our lives, that God is not treating me the way I deserve, he is faithful. And in the end, in the end, he will deliver me because he is good. 
If anyone had reason to doubt, it was Jesus, and yet he didn't. And I think we, if a good understanding of the Trinity, a good understanding of the divine simplicity and aseity, because they usually say that if the divine simplicity falls apart, as aseity goes as well as the Trinity concept. So if God is ever separated from himself, I don't know, the biggest bang in the world, like, right? It's just impossible. And so God did not turn away in separation on the cross. We can talk about what maybe happened. But Psalm 22, beginning and end, talks about the fact that it seemed to all human eyes that the Father was separating, and yet he wasn't. In fact, it was the greatest act of union at the cross because because of that, we were brought into fellowship with the Father. Bob. Yeah, that's a great one, Bob. And I like that you brought that up because would you just, here, can you read that? <laughs> I don't know where it is either. I would like, like so, so we see even at the cross, the authors of Scripture reveal to us that all three persons of the one God, one essence, were working for our salvation. Okay, so I'll just clue you into what I believe is going on there and move on. If it's not that kind of separation, it's a temporary, okay, not separation, but a temporary delay of right justice for our sake. Because the perfect man died. God died on a cross, though he committed no sin in our place. The whole sin, the world was being reconciled to him there. But God didn't separate from himself. So that's one good theological example. And we're going to talk about some other ones, some other practical examples on this note. I just want to tell you that, so all of this is systematic theology, okay, for the most part. The biblical language, you know, I am. I am is the biblical language of trinity, of unity, of aseity, of all of this. When God tells us who he is, he says, in Exodus, I am. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees before he was crucified, one of the things that made them most angry was he says, what? Before Abraham was? I am. am. This is a key biblical term that really speaks of all these things. And he equated himself with the Father by that. So the question that Jim and I have, he asked me last time, are we Trinitarian? I believe that a certain person in this room has written a commentary on John and that John 13 through 17 is actually one of the best practical discourses on the doctrine of the Trinity that we have in Scripture. Do we believe then what the Bible teaches us about the nature of God? And the answer might surprise us and myself as well. 